Welcome to Off Hours, a conversation between John Edwards and Chris Manning. Welcome back again. Uh, thank you. I'm done with traveling for a little bit, I think. I'm a little bit sick of airports at this point. Anyways, I'm I'm happy to be back in the Eastern time zone for a while, and my uh, my body has almost recovered now that I've been back for a week or so. So you were out on the West Coast for the Ornamental Turners Symposium. How was that? Yeah, it it was it was an okay symposium. It it wasn't the best symposium that uh, that we've had. Um, there there's certainly been some better ones. The the one we had in Denver two years ago was a little bit better from my point of view in terms of the topics. There were more engine turning topics there, and uh, so that was a little bit more interesting for me. Uh, this one was a little bit more focused on ornamental turning. And uh, there were also fewer fewer people who brought their, their equipment out with them. So that was a little bit disappointing. It's always worthwhile traveling to these if for no other reason than going out and, and visiting with people and, and getting a bunch of people in the same room that you don't normally get to see. That was the, it made the trip worthwhile was, uh, was the people, of course. But uh, this, the symposium, I think this year was a, was a solid five, but I, I don't think it was a, it certainly wasn't one of the better ones that I've been to. I guess I've been to six or seven of them now. It wasn't the best of them by any means. Well, I can empathize with people not wanting to bring their equipment to this particular symposium. I, for one, would not want to try and navigate the streets of Seattle with thousand-pound ornamental lathe in my trunk. Well, the the fortunate thing, I guess, in that case is that it really wasn't in Seattle. It was out by the airport, which isn't really in Seattle proper. But that's that's one of the other downsides of these these symposiums. Is they're often held out near the airport and away from the city, so. Even though we uh, we did get into the city one night for uh, for drinks and uh, dinner, it uh, you're really not in the city itself, so that that makes it a little bit challenging, unfortunately, for uh, finding interesting things to do when the the symposium is uh, is a bit lackluster like that. Now we've touched on guilloche work quite a bit in, in previous episodes and engine turning just in general, particularly in your your introductory episode there. Uh, for people who might not be familiar, what distinguishes ornamental turning from engine turning? The two arts are very heavily interrelated, and one grew out of the other. So ornamental turning is the original art, if you will. Originally, it was based on the use of a lathe. But unlike what most people are used to with a lathe, where you have a fast turning spindle and you're then presenting a cutter of some kind whether it's a chisel a handheld chisel or whether it's a a cutter mounted in a a carriage in the case of ornamental turning it it usually involves indexed work so the spindle get in, gets indexed and therefore the workpiece gets indexed and you then do work on on the part as it's as it's um, being indexed it uses uh, shaped cutters for turning profiles. It also uses uh, cams, uh, rosettes, similar to guilloche work on a rose engine, uh, for doing shaped work on the outside of a piece. With ornamental turning, it, it tends to be a, a slightly different style, uh, you know, leads to a different style of work than what guilloche work is doing. Traditionally, it was being done on ivory, uh, so the certainly the the most impressive pieces of ornamental turning that are out there were done on ivory originally. These days, people tend to, uh, obviously with the ivory ban, that's not a, uh, ivory's no longer a, uh, a possible material for use. 
so there are a few alternatives out there, people using some resins um, for, you know, sort of as a faux ivory. Uh, occasionally people use bone, although that's not particularly pleasant to work with. Uh, but most ornamental turners these days are using a high-density wood, something like an African black wood or a lignum vitae or uh, boxwood, something like that. Uh, we'll post some some images in the show notes about um, sort of what modern ornamental turning looks like. There's certainly some gorgeous work out there from uh, some people that I know, uh, people like Al Collins. He does absolutely fabulous work with ornamental turning. And so we'll, we'll put a few photos in the um, in the show notes for that for people who want to see it. But it, it's it's sort of a again it's a decorative art that's being done on a piece uh, on a on a lathe. It's just that it it's being done in a slightly different way than what we're used to, where you're sort of free turning uh, with a with a cutter. And then in the case of engine turning, it came out of ornamental turning, so it grew out of that. And there we get into slightly different work where the amplitude of a lot of the cams the rosettes that you're working on are much smaller uh, because you're t- you tend to be working in in metals where you're engraving the metals and so the the amplitude doesn't need to be as large and again we're primarily working in metals now instead of working in woods and ivories and things like that um, so the engine turning grew out of ornamental turning and then in many ways surpassed it in terms of the complexity of some of the machines that are out there when you look at geometric machines for cutting uh, security plates, uh, for instance, in the banknote industry, some of those engines were unbelievably complex. They, so they did spread apart a little bit, but the the engines, especially to the neophyte, the engines look almost identical. You wouldn't necessarily realize that one was being used for uh, for one type of work versus the other. So what are some use cases? Or you know, just paint a, a picture for one's imagination where they might see ornamental turning versus where they might see guilloche work? Uh, most people probably haven't run into ornamental turning. It's very rare these days. And unless you're sort of following along in the, you know, in this world, in the ornamental turning world, you're probably not going to run into it. So it's not as if you would find a modern day object that was ornamentally turned. Whereas people probably have seen engine turning work, if for no other reason than they've seen old old bank bills, right? Old bank bills, uh, old stamps, those kinds of things would have been done using engine turning work, and that like that security printing in the background would have been done doing doing engine turning work, or they may have seen it on the back of a watch case or the dial of a Breguet watch or something like that. So more people will probably have seen, you know, the sort of the results of engine turning work versus the results of ornamental turning. These days, a lot of people in the ornamental turning world tend to be working on things like uh, like small boxes, and and that team seems to be the most popular use of of it these days. You know, it's mostly hobbyists and very 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 few professional ornamental turners these days. Uh, there really is not a lot of demand for it in the art world uh the the few who do do it do unbelievably beautiful work but um most people are not selling their work or or selling it to a very small community now would ornate spindles on say chairs or table legs or bedposts be considered ornamental turning or is that a, a completely different technology at play there 
that's that's all going to be done on using different technologies. Some of it could be done using an ornamental engine, but most of that's going to be done using something some other technology. Uh, certainly, if it's just if it's just plain turned where it's just um, cylindrical, uh, even though it it may have different profiles on it, if it's just a cylinder, then that was done on a lathe and probably a copy lathe at that. So there, it's a lathe that's specifically designed to copy the same pattern over and over again. There was one ornamental lathe a couple of years ago that was designed for doing things like um, like twists in pillars and things like that. And so it was actually quite a large thing, and it was designed to have a router attached to it so that it would, as the router moved from one length or from one end of the of the beam to the other, the beam would twist in a known way. And basically, using the same technology that uh, screw cutting is being used, is being done with on on an engine lathe uh, like my machinist lathe, uh, same kind of technology. Uh, where the the carriage the motion of the carriage was tied to the rotation of the piece uh, so there you know there's some things out there that are that will allow you to do sort of ornate pillars and things like that that are i would say tangential to ornamental turning but really most ornamental turning work is being done on relatively small pieces you wouldn't want to do ornamental turning on something like a banister spindle or something like that it, it's just it's a bit too long most of the pieces are much smaller than that uh, and you know, let's say they're, I would say most of them are probably under nine inches in length. So that that really limits mm-hmm. its use, and and it really is being used as a as a purely decorative thing. There's there's really very little use in it, practical use in it for any reason other than doing, you know, doing decorative work. I guess I spent a little too much time living in a castle. Yeah, and that stuff was probably being hand carved. It probably wasn't being done on a on something like this. I was impressed by the uh, just how well replicated a number of the patterns were, and then the the bedposts I have in mind are actually uh, from an old Victorian bed we inherited from my wife's parents, mm. and it has um, I don't quite know what I would call the the tops of the the posts, but it's uh, almost like a, a fusion of uh, an acorn with uh, a barley guilloche pattern on it they're quite ornate and and certainly not uh something that would have easily been replicated uh as fastidiously and and accurately as it was across the the four posts and then of course around the perimeter of the post as well just carving it by hand would be quite a talented craftsman i wouldn't be surprised if they were carved by hand uh depending on the era that they were in they were made in i wouldn't be at all surprised if they were hand carved Uh, some of the some of the hand carved work i've seen that'd be a the ability for for carvers to be able to replicate work like that is is pretty impressive. So it wouldn't shock me if they were. I'd, I'd be interested in seeing some photos of them, but it wouldn't shock me at all if they were uh, actually carved by hand. Interesting. I shall have to take a closer look at them. So you mentioned lignum vitae and some other materials there, and I I don't know which of John Harrison's clocks you you saw there at the exhibition when you were in London, mm-hmm. but he. He used lignum vitae in his wood clocks because of its dense properties. Uh, it's a, a wood that pretty much was able to, to lubricate itself. So it was, he was able to make escapements that required no lubrication thanks to the, the lignum vitae. But how would you describe uh, things like the, the lignum vitae and the blackwood? And uh, there was a competition with uh, some Mopani blocks there at the 
the OTI symposium, if I remember correctly. How would you, like, what makes these materials particularly good for ornamental turning? Well, one in in the case of ornamental turning, you are putting excessive amounts of um, of decoration on the surface of the of the material, and in some cases, they do get quite gaudy. So, depending on the taste of the person who's making it, a lot of old Ornamental turning would be far too gaudy for most people's modern eye. Some of the modern stuff is far too gaudy for the modern eye. Um, some of the some of the stuff that's out there that's a little bit more restrained is is a little bit nicer, but it is still going to have a lot of surface decoration to it. So one of the, we'll post some photos of a box that uh, Al Collins made a few years ago that I bought, and it's made out of mopani, which is uh, it's a brownish wood that. I'd say it's sort of a medium colored brown wood. And one of the key things with a lot of the wood that's popular and use for ornamental turning is that it doesn't have a lot of figure to it. So it's not it's not going to have a lot of figure that's competing with the ornamentation that you're putting on it. Because it just gets lost if you've got too much too much character to it. So something like a very highly figured burl, like a maple burl or something like that, would be inappropriate for ornamental turning mostly because that texture in the wood is going to compete quite heavily with the ornamentation that you're putting on it. So that doesn't that doesn't help. So the first thing is you want something that's relatively consistent color-wise. Uh, the next thing that you want is a material that's very dense. The denser it is, the better. So something like African blackwood is really ideal for it. Same thing with boxwood, English boxwood. Both are absolutely ideal for making ornamental turning and the reason for that is because of its density you can get very very crisp clean cuts out of it you can also get the cuts to a very high polish so in the case of al his work is done primarily using a fixed cutter and it's just very slowly going and cutting the wood he has an indexer on his engine that moves the cutter in by a half a thou every rotation. So every time it every time it passes around through one RPM, it will cut another half thou deeper. And so it's just shaving a very, very thin shaving of wood off every every time it passes by. And then once it gets to the, the maximum depth that it needs to go to, it will sit there and it will just it'll burnish that wood as it's as it's passing along. A very, very sharp cutter and again it's just gonna burnish that wood. And in the case of a very dense wood, something like an African blackwood or a Mopani uh, or a boxwood, it's going to leave a beautiful, beautiful finish to the point where you don't need to do any polishing or anything like that on the piece afterwards. You might just put a, a very thin wax on it just to, to help protect the wood a little bit from drying out, but you don't actually need to buff it or polish it or anything like that to get the to get a nice bright bright surface. It's uh, it's impressive wood when you when you see it. It's just it is so hard and dense that uh, that you don't need to do much to get a very very high polish on it. Now, just to clarify, you you mentioned one RPM when you were referring to Al Collins' work. There, did you mean on each turn, or, or is he literally turning at, at one RPM? Yeah, I should say that that you're that's a good point. So the one rotation of it is going to be a half thou depth. If he's working at ten RPM, maybe tops for a lot of his work the slower it goes the better because it's you're going to leave a better finish with it 
and your his his engines are quite heavy, so they're not, you're not going to get very much chatter out of it. It's beautiful watching it. it. It's almost mesmerizing watching these things being cut. So there, something like that with fixed tool work, you're going to get that kind of very very slow work. And again, that last that last pass, he might let it run for a half hour, forty minutes, where it, it isn't going any deeper, but it is sitting there and burnishing the cut that he's making. That kind of work looks gorgeous in in blackwood or mopani or something like that. Uh, the other type of work that's commonly being done in ornamental turning is with a spinning cutter. And so in this case, you're going to use a very, very sharp carbide or diamond tool, and it's going to be spinning at high RPM, so maybe 20,000 RPM. And you're going to present it into the wood, and then the wood is going to, to be moving and the rosette is going to allow it to sort of move in and out, just like like ornament, just like with engine turning, where you see that pattern being cut by the tool that's being engraved in the metal. In this case, you're using a, f- a spinning cutter to do the same kind of thing. So you get these beautiful these beautiful rose patterns and whatnot being cut in it. Um, one of the boxes I'll post uh, was done using a combination of fixed tool cutting and spinning tool cutting, and you can see the rosette on the top which will show you the you know the sort of the beauty of the the spinning cutter and then the the sides of it were being done with a fixed tool so you can see you know it leaves a, a gorgeous gorgeous finish on the uh, the side of the material in the vein of engine turning and ornamental turning there are often people who are doing other sort of curiosities at these um these events so you'll see things like chinese balls where you've got the um, the layered balls inside of each other, and they're all turned out of a single piece of wood. So you might have five or six or seven layers of wood that's been turned into successively smaller balls inside of each other, so they're trapped. Uh, so those those kinds of things are often on display and can be quite entertaining. This year there were um, there was a gentleman who did um, some really fun Singapore balls. Uh, they have um, little spikes st- sticking out of them. And um, I'll, I'll post a, a link to the uh, Instagram post where I put a video up of the Singapore balls. They're kind of a fun thing. They're again, they're they're sort of a distraction. They're they're a little uh, uh, a little sort of fiddle toy that you can play with that are that are kind of fun. And so you see a lot of that kind of work at these because again, they're they're based on precision woodworking. They're based on a lot of indexing, and and that's sort of where the foundations of ornamental turning come from is is doing a lot of indexed work and precision turning. Yeah, I've never seen Singapore balls before, so I'd be interested to check that out. Yeah, they're kind of fun. I'll uh, as I said, I'll post I posted a video on Instagram with uh, with the Singapore balls that uh, that Wes made. Uh, they're a lot of fun. I, I'm thinking about making a couple of them just to have as sort of fiddle toys around uh, around the shop because they're uh, they're fun to play with and they're sort of a, an interesting little little thing people look at them and try and figure out how they're made same thing with the the chinese balls where you've got multiple layers of balls inside of it and it's it's all turned out of a single piece a lot of a lot of people find them fun to play with and they're they're uh, sort of confused as to how they're made it's one area where 3d printers like to to show off too yeah 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 some of this 3d printing stuff that you can do is good or you can make trapped pieces inside of another another part that uh, that certainly excels when it comes to uh, 3d printing actually that was one of the fun things when i was at um, cookson's gold one of the projects they were printing up for a customer uh, they were printing half of the it was a cage that was being printed i think it was being done as part of an earring 
And so they would print the first half of it. Then they would actually install uh, a gem bead on the post in the center of it. And then they would finish printing it. So the the gemstone was basically trapped on a post in the center of this cage. And it's one of those things that it would be nearly impossible to do otherwise. Uh, it really, really relies on the um, on 3D printing to be able to get it in there. So would they 3D print the setting then for this stone? So they, they interrupt the, the flow, I take it, drop the stone in, and then yeah. Yeah. print. Yeah, exactly. Hmm. That is actually quite the, the feat of engineering. And must have had quite a few experiments to be able to pull that off. Yeah, it's an interesting, interesting process. They've they've also done other things where uh, David was showing me some some bracelets, for instance, where they had printed the first half in yellow gold, and then they printed the second half in white gold. So if you flip it over, depending on which way you wear it, you've either got a yellow gold bracelet or a white gold bracelet, and it was printed as a single part, and it's a flexible bracelet. You know, it's, it's impressive some of the things that you can do if you're willing to switch out materials, for instance, in the middle and, and uh, change it up. You mentioned that uh, back in our, our episode following the Santa Fe Symposium. He, he presented on, on that, if I recall correctly. Yeah, that's right. That was one of the pieces that he had on display there. And uh, and again, it's it's quite impressive when you see some of this. So the, yeah, it's interesting that, that in some ways 3D printing is now just catching up to some of the old technologies that were out there in terms of captured captured items if you're sort of clever about how you can make things you're uh, you'll often have uh, have sort of fun fun toys that you can make that that seem impossible to manufacture uh, one of the classic um, sort of machinist uh, projects for uh, for apprentices is to make uh, machinist cubes where it, it's turned for or it's milled from a single block of material and it has multiple cubes inside of each other and again, it's it's sort of a a fun little how did they do that kind of thing that uh, that baffles people. Mm-hmm. Now, someone else who's come up on past episodes of the show is is Chris Plute. And in addition to Chris, uh, back in episode seven, we touched on the work of Bob Kramer, who's a a prolific knife maker out there on the West Coast, and you had. The opportunity to sit down and, and have dinner with the two of them while you were out there. Chris, of course, is a is a good friend, and we um, we were often at the same conferences. So it was I knew that uh, Chris was going to be out there and and hanging out. And before the conference this year, he was up in uh, Bellingham, Washington, with uh, his partner in crime in uh, in LM Metals with Jim Binion, who is a very gifted Mokame Gane artist. And uh, so they were they were up there in Bellingham doing some experimentation, and Bob happened to be involved as well because Bob does a lot of stuff with laminated metals. Uh, if you take a look at his his knives, one of the characteristics of his knives is that they're made with uh, laminated steels. So they were experimenting with some mokamegane being fired using traditional uh, charcoal forges uh, of a Japanese design. Uh, so they actually took a took a traditional Japanese design for both the um, the forge and the bellows. Uh, they built it and they were they were doing some traditional uh, mokume gane in it. Uh, so they were playing around with that a little bit the, leading up to the symposium. And then uh, Bob decided to come down to the symposium as well. And uh, so the, you know, the three of us had dinner on, on Friday night and had a good time chatting about art and 
talk about the things that we do. So it was uh, it was really nice to uh, to meet Bob and and have a good chat with him because he's a fascinating man and curious about the world. So it was uh, it fits in perfectly with the kinds of people that I like to spend time with. So that was nice to uh, to be able to catch up with him and and sort of talk about his process and and a little bit about what he does. Now, did any of you bring work along with you to the dinner to show up? No, no, it was um it was mostly uh mostly talking about what we're doing, not uh not not sort of showing it off. Unfortunately a lot of the stuff that we're we're making these days tends to be stuff that, that goes out for you know, sort of being sold to customers immediately after it's made, so it doesn't necessarily hang around long enough to be able to show off at things like this. Uh, unfortunately this this was the first symposium in a while that I didn't have anything to actually show off while I was there. Uh, just because all my all my engine turned work has been out the door. And uh, same thing, Bob. Bob's work usually goes out the door pretty quickly once he's uh, once he's made it. You didn't at least have a pen tucked in your collar. Oh, well, I always have a pen tucked in my collar, but eh, those aren't interesting. <laughs> those are just those are just boring pens. So another interesting person you were able to rendezvous with is Brittany Nicole Cox. Yeah, uh, Brittany's a friend that I uh, I met through the ornamental turning world. Uh, she was at the symposium in Denver a couple of years ago, and uh, we've sort of been orbiting in similar circles for for quite a while now. She's an incredibly gifted antiquarian horologist, and certainly one of a handful of people in the world who can do the work that she does, doing restoration work on automatons and particularly complex old watches and and clocks and whatnot. She has a a shop out in the Seattle area, and does incredible restoration work for people all around the world everything from music boxes to little singing birds to uh, she had a she had a, a dog there it was a bulldog a paper mache bulldog that um uh, it was animated in the same some way anyways uh, she invited us out to um a couple of us out to to have a visit around her shop and and chat with her a bit uh, so that was that was nice because of course i'm a total whore for tools and I always enjoy watching, uh, looking at, at what other people have in their shops. So it was nice to, uh, to sort of see what she's got in her shop and then also take a look and see some of the pieces that she's working on right now. And she gave uh, an interesting talk at the Horological Society of New York not too long ago as well on, on smoking bellows used in automata. Yeah, yeah, There's there, that that was a really good talk. Uh, that's actually up available on YouTube now. So we'll put a link to that in the uh, in the show notes. But that's... Uh, yeah, that was a really good talk. And again, she's she's one of only a handful of people out there who who are doing this kind of work. And the nice thing is that she's doing it not only restoration work but also conservation work. So she's a, um, you know, she she does have uh, a number of degrees from various organizations. Um, you know, everything from watchmaking uh, because she did um, she did go through the WoStep watchmaking program at one point. She also went to Westine College and did their um, Horological Conservation Program, and she's a member of the uh, Conservationists of uh, the United States. There's a there's an organization in the U.S. for of conservationists, so uh, which is quite important. A lot of people don't really think about the difference between conservation versus restoration, uh, but when it comes to a lot of key pieces, a lot of old pieces, you don't actually want to restore them if they have any real value. You want to conserve them uh, because that. Um, that originalness of it, the you know the patina that it's developed, the the faults that it has, those are actually quite important to the tale of the piece. And in terms of its value, they're they're crucial. And if you 
restore it to as new as it would have been right out of the box kind of thing, you're usually destroying a lot of what's what makes it valuable to a collector. So there's a there's always a balance whenever you're working on old pieces of how much work do you do in conserving it versus how much work do you do in restoring it and what is the ultimate goal of of the piece. If it's something that that may not have any real value uh, as a historical object, then it may be worth doing as a as a restoration piece. So in in the case of a couple of the old pocket watch movements I have, for instance, that we've talked about, uh, I have a, a minute repeater, for instance, and I have a, a split second chronograph, neither of which are particularly interesting pieces from a, a historical point of view and don't really have a lot of value in and of their own right. And so those pieces I'll do a full restoration work on. So they're going to be, I'm going to bring them back to probably better than they were when they were new. Uh, But if you are working on conserving a piece, really the goal there is to protect what is there and to prevent it from deteriorating further. And so if you're you're dealing with a, let's say you had a piece of furniture from a particularly famous, um, you know, let's say an original piece of Chippendale furniture, that kind of thing you do not want to do restoration work on. You want to conserve it so that it's no longer deteriorating, but it's you're not actually trying to make it better, quote unquote, than it than it is right now. Yeah, it's a difficult balance to strike at times. I'm working on a, a piece right now for a collector, and we've had a number of back and forths about uh, precisely what to do with with various aspects of the the watch and uh, the, the primary goal is just going to be to restore it to good working order while leaving much of its uh, charm in, in the various faults that that it still has intact right right and that might mean leaving a cracked enamel dial in place versus replacing it or trying to fix that enamel dial sometimes it's it's leaving uh, you know a wheel that's been corroded but is still functional and stopping the corrosion and that kind of thing. So it's it is a challenging, a challenging balance. Um, you also see that in the tool world. So, for instance, uh, we talk. You know, we've talked a lot about the ornamental lathes and um, engine turning machines and whatnot that are uh, that are used for doing the the work that I do. And you take somewhere like the Science Museum in London. In their reserve collection, they have hundreds and hundreds of these um, these engines. Uh, I know there's also a uh, one of the museums in Paris has a huge reserve collection with with hundreds of these engines in in their in their collection and it's a little bit frustrating as an artist because you look at these pieces and you know with very little work in some cases I could restore those pieces back to uh, you know back to functioning engines that could be making beautiful work um actually the museum of the jewelry quarter that I was visiting when I was in Birmingham they had a couple of of straight line engines there and a rose engine that were in remarkably good condition. They really just needed a little bit of work to clean them up and and get them back in functioning order. And that's the kind of work where uh, a museum is unlikely to ever want to get them back into functioning order. They want to conserve them so they don't get any worse. But their goal is not to make it into a functioning machine again, which is a little bit unfortunate because I think in in some ways we're losing something by not having these machines functional and or these you know these watches or whatever functional. Um, and and showing off what they were doing, you know, if all we do is conserve them, then they're you know they're never going to work again. They're never going to do what they were intended to do. Continuing on in the the vein of horological and and other shop tools, uh, a link I was not aware of was that 
Brittany had also worked with Ted Crum to some degree in the past, and he authored a number of seminal works on on horological tools, particularly those that were used back in, say, the Victorian era. Mm -hmm. He wrote a couple of great books, primarily focused on the era, sort of 1700 to 1900, uh, discussing different uh, watchmaking tools. So everything from uh, wheel cutting engines, uh, in fact, he has a book specifically about wheel cutting engines, to all of the tools that that a watchmaker might buy, um, uh, catalogs of horological tools. And um, and so one of the books that he wrote, I actually picked up a copy from uh, from Brittany while I was there on uh, horological and other shop tools from 1700 to 1900. And this covers, again, a lot of the uh, these tools that were being used by horologists several hundred years ago. And one of the, the key interests for me is that there's a large section in there on engine turning equipment. Uh, so that was particularly interesting to me. I might actually pick up the one on wheel cutting at some point because I, being able to make a wheel cutter for for doing some some of my own wheel cutting work might be interesting. But um, yeah, there it's uh, it was nice seeing this book, and they're, unfortunately they're, they're often difficult to find. Uh, but if you're if you're of any in, if you have any interest in old watchmaking tools or even just old tools in general, uh, these books are fabulous. They've got a, a wealth of knowledge in them. And in many cases, have uh, reprints of original catalogs for watchmaking tools. Uh, in some cases, they have uh, detailed photographs of existing pieces and whatnot. Um, so that's it's a that's quite a good book. We'll be sure to link to that in the the show notes as well. And in fact, if you're interested in that kind of thing, there was a really good uh, episode of the Watches TV recently that had uh, Peter Speak Marin in it. And he was going through and giving a bit of a tour of a collection in France, I believe it was, of antique watchmaking tools. And uh, he goes through and he explains what some of these these machines do, uh, what some of these tools do, and, and explains the importance of them. And the, that was quite interesting. So if you're not sure what we're talking about when we're talking about antique watchmaking tools, that video is is quite good. It's maybe half hour long. And, and he, he goes through and and gives a great tour of this uh, this collection. And one final segue to round things out, given that uh, Speak Marin is an independent watchmaker, and uh, we are on the subject of books. You picked up uh, a book while you were traveling in England. Uh, you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so one of the things I think we discussed briefly on the show a while back was this exhibit of independent watchmakers, and it was uh, Watchmakers, the Masters of Art Horology, yeah, so the AHCI is an independent group of watchmakers and tend to be focused on very high-end watchmakers. And they had an exhibit going around. Uh, I know it hit London, New York, and I think Hong Kong. And they had an excellent exhibit of, of work from people like um, like George Daniels. They had uh, Philippe Dufour, uh, Romain Gauthier, uh, Vianney Halter. I think Roger Smith had some work in there, Carrie Voodelainen. So there were some really, really high-end watchmakers that were that had watches in this uh, this show. Anyways, there's um, there was an excellent catalog that was created from this uh, from this collection. Uh, it's a very large format book. It includes photos not just of the pieces that were there, but also some information about the pieces, and in some cases, photos of the artists themselves working on them. Uh, so that was quite a quite a nice coup finding a copy of that. 
Uh, I'm a, a sucker for a, a great reference book like this on um, on high end watch design and, and making. So, yeah, that's a that's a, a really nice uh, really nice piece. If you can find a find it at a reasonable price, I recommend it. And another great reference book in in that same vein is the Twelve Faces of Time. Now, all of the photography inside is is black and white, and there there are some instances in there where I, I wish the photos were in color, uh, but that shows uh, some bit of behind the scenes of uh, various independent watchmakers and and sort of their their lives and their their craft and then of course the pieces that they create as well so i would also recommend that book it is certainly a pleasant book and and again it's unfortunate that it's all in black and white but it, there's some great photography in there and there's certainly some really interesting pieces in there and it's nice to be able to see see people while they're working and and see them sort of in situ as they're as they're working and again, that's one of the reasons why I love being able to visit people's shops, like be, being able to visit Brittany's shop while I was there. Uh, it's fascinating being able to see what people are working on and be able to talk a little bit to them about the the process. Brittany's shop is is great. It's it's one of those things that, honestly, except for the lighting in there, it's like walking into a Victorian watchmaker's studio. Um, it it really is uh, impressive. A lot of the equipment is is period to the actual work that she's working on. And uh, and even the stuff that sh- that isn't period to that, you know, a lot of that stuff is is you know maybe the newest stuff is early twentieth century. It's certainly a nice uh, nice to be able to see some of these people. If you're ever working with an artist and you know something like that in a traditional skill like this traditional art, if if possible, it's often worthwhile being able to visit and see what they're doing and where they're doing it because it does give you some insight into into the art and and what's involved. It certainly provides a deeper appreciation for the the skill and the array of equipment necessary to, to do what they do. A note for listeners who will be in the Ottawa area the evening of October 23rd, 2018. Rich Lowen and I will be giving a talk at Makerspace North. The talk will be focused primarily on building CNC machines for use in the shop as well as how the two of us use them to augment the more traditional tools and techniques we use. If this sounds like something you'd be interested in, details as well as a link to where you can purchase tickets will be in the show notes. Thanks for listening to Off Hours. You can find detailed show notes at offhours.show. If you'd like to keep up to date with the show, Follow us on Twitter, at OffHours. John can be found on Twitter at UnderTheLoop, and Chris can be found on Twitter and Instagram at Silver underscore Hand. <laughs>